0: Amen. So I brought a clock up here, but don't get excited. Um, Probably in the first service, that didn't impact the length of the sermon at all. But I brought a clock up here, and on this clock, it says, uh, Matt McGowan, 2001 Outstanding Individual Volunteer. So 2001 was probably when our graduates uh, this year were born. Is that about right, parents? About right? So uh, back in 2001... Um, I had the privilege of being named the Outstanding Individual Volunteer at the same facility where I had been incarcerated for a year. So I had been, 2001, I was uh, about a junior in in college, I think, Uh, was seriously dating. Sonda, I was probably ring shopping around this time, and, and, uh, and I had been able to go back in for quite some time. A couple years I'd been going in and to the facility where I had been locked up as a teenager, I was going in and doing Bible studies there and able to, uh, to minister uh, in a place that, uh, that God really used in my life. And so I get this Volunteer of the Year award um, clock, and it's got a couple of scrapes on it that'll probably make sense here in a minute, but I get this Volunteer of the Year award clock, and there's a lot of people out there, and is a banquet, it was a, it was a nice kind of dinner and all that, and... and um, and there's people in the crowd there that have been just so, so supportive of me and encouraging for me. There are a couple people that had been not so supportive and encouraging. And it was kind of like, all right, yeah, that shows you, right? Here I am, Volunteer of the Year. You didn't think I was going to make it. Well, here I am. And so, so I'm holding the clock, and they say this great stuff about me. And I was like, oh, stop, you know, stop. And, and I go, and I'm kind of holding... The clock, it's like on a, they had it set on a box, you know. And I, and I go to take a step towards, back to my seat, and the clock tumbles out of my hands, smashes on the floor into several pieces. And I went from proudly chest out, uh, you know, look at me in front of everyone, to being on my hands and knees, gathering up the broken pieces from the floor. And I learned something really, really important that day. Um, that sadly I've had to learn over and over and over again. Really two important things. One, God is relentlessly committed to destroying pride in my life. God is relentlessly committed to destroying pride in your life and in my life because pride left unchecked will destroy you. God is committed to destroying pride in your life before pride destroys you. So I learned that. God's relentlessly committed to destroying pride in my life. And I learned, number two, that God is able to put broken things back together. It went back together, it's fine, and there's a couple of scratches on there to remind me something when I let it. So God is relentlessly committed to destroying pride in our lives, and God is able to put broken things back together. So what is pride? You know, we use that word pride in a couple of different ways. So we use the word pride in in the English language... We use the word pride in a positive sense a lot, like have school pride or pride in our community. I tell my son, I'm proud of you, and he says, I'm proud of you too, Dad, and, and that's just that's a, a positive uh, use of the word pride. It's this idea of pursuing excellence. It's the idea of, of having deep care and concern for one another, uh, but, but, the, but, but the pride we're talking about today is this dark, spiritual pride. Um, It's this dark force that's at the root of all sin, and this kind of pride that we're talking about today—this kind of pride will kill you, and that's not an exaggeration. God uh, is committed to destroying pride. He's relentlessly committed to destroying pride in my life. He's relentlessly committed to destroying pride in your life because pride will destroy you. Pride will kill you. Pride will destroy your marriage. It will destroy every friendship. It will destroy your life group. Pride will destroy any road relationships. It will destroy and erode your relationship with God. It will kill you. It will lead you where you never wanted to go and will prevent you from crying out to the only person who can rescue you. That's what pride does. So sinful pride at root, and the the, the Hebrew root, uh, literally means to lift yourself up high. So in the first service, I said pride meant to be high or to get high. And, you know, that group bunch of heathens in that group that that just but you guys wouldn't you're too sanctified to take it that way but but it means to lift yourself up high to to kind of have this elevated posture in other words pride is to try to place yourself above other people to place yourself even above God as king of the cosmos and to look down at others and to refuse to look up at God and the hard thing about this is that we all can instantly picture people that act this way but the person that you know, is most important that we'd be picturing right now is the person that we look at in the mirror every day. The word pride is used alongside the scripture, the ideas of arrogance, the idea of wickedness. And, and in Proverbs 8.13, which we have up there, it, it's listed as something that God hates. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. In other words, to fear God means that I hate evil. Um, if, if I fear God, then I'm not going to flirt with evil. I'm not going to see how close I can get to evil. Fearing God means hating evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God says he hates pride, arrogance, evil ways, perverted speech. He hates it. And so if God says he hates something, that's kind of a big deal, okay? Pride is characterized by a stiff neck. Uh, 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 stopped up ears a hard heart clenched fist a face again that looks down on others and refuses to look up at God and we all wrestle with pride um, especially the one that thinks that they don't and this matters because it's destructive so C.S. Lewis said this way better than I ever could C.S. Lewis wrote according he said according to Christian teachers the essential vice the utmost evil is pride Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that, he says, are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Think about that. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's anti christ because pride says i can do it i don't need god pride says i'm the uh, the one who decides what's right and wrong lewis says it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began c.s lewis goes on to say the more we have it in ourselves the more we dislike it in others ouch so where does pride lead In our Babylon, and really in every Babylon since the beginning of time, pride can lead to a lot of short-term success. Pride can lead to short-term success, promotion, um, uh, exaltation. But God's Word says, God's Word promises that pride leads, even if it may lead to short-term success, it leads to long-term ruin, long-term destruction. God's word says, if you, you humble yourself and God will exalt you. Our job is to humble ourselves. God's job is to exalt us. But if I do God's job, he will do my job. If I do God's job and exalt myself, he will do my job and humble me. And that's what we're going to see happen today in Daniel 4 with Nebuchadnezzar. So where does pride lead? Leads to ruin. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. So in Daniel 4, we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar's campfire story. We're going to read his testimony of how God got his attention. And, and it begins and ends with praise of God. And in, and in between, there's this, there's this description of Nebuchadnezzar going from pride in himself to praise of God. In, in chapter four, verses one through three, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. He says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an neverlasting kingdom. His dominion endures generation to generation. So it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar is like this, a, a flash forward, and then in verse four, we're gonna go to a flashback to where did he start and how did he get to this place of praise, all right? And what I'd like for us to see today is that the opposite of pride The opposite of a life of pride is a life of praise in the sovereign God. The opposite of a life of pride is a life of praise toward the sovereign God. So what uh, I I love the way John Piper frames this passage. Uh, He he describes uh, Daniel chapter 4 and he says, What Daniel describes in this story is the pathway of a man from pride of self to praise of God through the valley of humiliation. And that's a pathway every person in the world must walk if he wants to go to heaven and gain eternal life. The path that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar walk through, from pride of self to praise of God, he gets there through the valley of humiliation. That's the path that every one of us must go. And the only choice for us is, will we humble ourselves by choice, or will we be humbled by God? All right, and so we begin with uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his, and his selfish pride, and so there's bad news and good news in all this. Bad news, God hates pride, and we really struggle with it. That's the bad news. Uh, he hates religious pride, and he hates, you know, worldly pride. He doesn't care what flavor of pride is. He doesn't care if we're holding a Bible or a crack pipe in our hand. He hates pride. It doesn't matter what it looks like. He hates pride. Good news, God loves sinners, That is really good news. God hates pride. That's the bad news. Good news, God loves sinners. And uh, Jesus is willing to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Spoiler alert, what he does for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, Philippians 2, he humbles himself. We could not humble ourselves apart from Christ. Uh, Romans 8 says that the flesh is hostile to God. But but God, by, by his spirit, does for us what we could never do. For ourselves, so selfish pride is where Nebuchadnezzar begins. Um, chapter four, verse four: I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house; I was prospering in my palace. So Nebuchadnezzar had built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had an amazing palace. I mean, the guy had it going on. Okay, we can't imagine the beauty that surrounded him. What he had carved out in the desert. I mean, he had really accomplished something. And he says there in verse four, I was. At ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And so it's like me uh, calling uh, Dylan and saying, hey Dylan, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Like, really? Like who talks like that? You know what I mean? And so you can just hear like the pretension in his voice. Um, I was just at ease and I was prospering. We begin with selfish pride. There's some things that we've seen throughout Daniel. uh, We've seen about Nebuchadnezzar already. There's some qualities we've seen about Nebuchadnezzar already. We've seen self-centered narcissism. It's got to be about him. We've seen an unchecked thirst for power and control. We see fury when he doesn't get his way. What's he constantly threatening to do? Cut people limb from limb and bulldoze their houses down. And we see fury when he doesn't get his way. We see that he's demanding of others. He refuses to remain in a humble posture. No matter how many times he sees God work, he continues to get stiff-necked and proud again. And he must constantly be the center of attention and adoration. And so as we look at these patterns of pride, like we as people need to be really wary of any rulers or leaders who exhibit this kind of unchecked arrogance. But we need to most be wary of that level of unchecked arrogance within ourselves um, and root it out. God is relentlessly committed to destroying pride in us because pride unchecked will destroy us. So there's um, some, some, some qualities that differentiate fleshly pride versus Christ-like humility. One is um, uh, fleshly pride, and our, our graphic t- turned out, you couldn't see it very well, but uh, fleshly pride is preoccupied with self. Um, Christ-like humility makes much of Christ. So it's a, a question we can ask ourselves Over the past week, Have I been preoccupied with myself or have I been preoccupied with making much of Christ? Have I been preoccupied the last few days with me? Have I been making much of me or making much of him? Fleshly pride is self-righteous, harsh, critical. Christ-like humility is quick to extend mercy. Uh, Fleshly pride looks at others through a microscope and is constantly fault-finding, critical of others. Um, Christ-like humility is looking for anything that can be affirmed in someone else, looking for the best in others. Fleshly pride is argumentative and resistant to feedback. It just armors up, you can't tell me, no- you listen to uh, Old Town Road, it's on the radio all the time, everybody listen to, you know, Will driving around listening to Old Town Road, there's a, there's a line in there that says, can't nobody tell me nothing, you can't tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing, you can't tell me nothing. And, and that is what a fool says. And there's been times in our lives when that's been our motto, whether we sang it to that tune, whether it was Billy Ray Cyrus singing it or not, like, can't nobody tell me nothing, you can't tell me nothing. Whether we've got a Bible or a crack pipe in our hand, God hates that kind of attitude, and that's the attitude of a fool. So argumentative and resistant to feedback, where Christ-like humility invites feedback. Uh, uh, Fleshly pride is perpetually foolish. Make it about me, keep me the center of attention, doing foolish things. Christ-like humility is growing in wisdom. So if we turn to 1 Peter 5. Maybe keep a a hand on Daniel 4. 1 Peter 5 is also going to be up on your your screen. It says, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. There's so many great memory verses in this passage, but they all flow out of uh, this idea of submitting to one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So why does God oppose the proud? Let's keep reading. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory on the cross, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So why does God oppose the proud? Because pride opposes God. Pride dishonors God. God opposes the proud because pride abuses other people. When my heart goes over and gets hardened to pride, I end up being abusive in speech or action or both to other people. God opposes pride because pride leads to your destruction. God opposes anything that will destroy you, just like you oppose anything that would destroy your, your children. God opposes pride because pride robs you of the gift of God's daily care for you. He just cast all your anxieties on him because he cares. Well, I don't do that if I'm arrogant. I don't do that if I'm proud. And so pride robs me of the privilege of God's daily care. For me, Jonathan Pacluda says if you are wearing if you are wearing pride, you are suited up for the other team. It says here, "Clothe yourself in humility." That's how you know who belongs to Christ and who doesn't. Clothe yourself in humility. If we suit up in pride, we're we're playing for the wrong team. We're finding that we're in opposition to God. It also says, you know, to resist the devil, he's like a roaring lion, you know. um, uh, There's uh, two cats that call um, our house home, but only one of them do I claim, okay? Thunder is one that we feed and take to the vet and all these things, but the other cat, Shadow, very appropriate name, because he's a shadowy, evil figure, okay, and Shadow is not our cat. I I do not recognize this cat, um, I do not claim this cat, but some creatures in my family feed this thing. So what happens when you feed a stray cat? It keeps coming around, right? And so I walk outside at night, there's shadow jumping around, you know, jumping on my feet, and, and it 's a bad, bad thing. I do not like this cat, but, uh, but somebody 's feeding him, and so he keeps coming around. And the only way to get rid of a stray cat is to starve him. is to, is to stop feeding him and then he will go somewhere else. And, and the way that we feed Satan in our lives is we feed him a steady diet of pride, of arrogance. He thrives in an environment of arrogance. And the way we resist him is we starve him of that. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And so graduates, if there's one thing you hear, take that message to heart. Um, clothe yourself in Humility toward God, toward one another. The opposite of a life of pride is a life of praise toward the sovereign God. So we began there with Nebuchadnezzar in this pride of self, and then we're going to watch him descend unwillingly into the valley of humiliation. All right, And so he has a dream. He had a dream back in chapter 2, and, and God, through Daniel, uh, revealed himself to and his plan to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Then uh, in chapter 3, he sees this incredible deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar has seen God move in some pretty spectacular ways. And now here we are in chapter 4. Years have passed, maybe decades have passed. Nebuchadnezzar is probably towards the end of his life. Daniel would be probably a middle-aged man or more. And and he's and 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 again Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream. So verse four, he's at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So uh the first thing I'd like us to see here is that because God is good, he troubles proud hearts. Because God is good, he troubles proud hearts. It's God's goodness in our lives when he troubles a proud heart. So today, we would would talk to Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh, you can't sleep? You're having anxiety? Let's take a pill. There's pills for that. And there's time to take pills, right? There's a time for that. But there's no pill in the world that's gonna cure Nebuchadnezzar's problem because Nebuchadnezzar's problem is he's opposed to God. Nebuchadnezzar is anxious, Um, because he's proud and his troubled heart is a check engine light look under the hood nebuchadnezzar look at what's going on nebuchadnezzar god's after him god is troubling his heart not because he hates nebuchadnezzar but because he loves him he's troubling his heart and these dark emotions aren't something for nebuchadnezzar to conceal or run from This is God's determination to draw him to himself. Because God is good, sometimes God troubles proud hearts. When I'm proud, my heart gets troubled, and that's the goodness of God. Because God is good, next, he reveals himself even to the proud. Look, Nebuchadnezzar is not seeking God, but yet somehow God in his mercy reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar. That sounds a lot like you and me. It wasn't like God looked around and said, man, here's a guy really doing awesome. I think because he's doing so great, I'm going to show myself to him. No, it's by God's grace that we're saved. Through faith, not by works. lest any man should boast. And so, so God seeks us long before we ever think about seeking him. And so because God is good, he reveals himself even to the proud. He seeks us when we're not seeking him. So, so again, Nebuchadnezzar calls in his wise men and his dream interpreters, and they can't help him. And so he calls Daniel in. He, call, so he calls him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Hey, there's this guy that's really good at this stuff. And he calls him in. Verse ten: The visions of my head. Verse ten: The visions of my head, as a lay bed, were these. I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. And it was food for all the beasts. Of the fields found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And then, and then the, the, the dream's going to go on, and every connection is going to tell Daniel, but then I saw this tree get cut down, and an iron uh, and a bronze band were placed around it, and it had the dew of the, of the, uh, of the, of the, of the earth on it. And, and it, and it was bound up here for seven seasons of time, or seven periods of time. And, and, and this sounds like... I mean, bad news, right? I mean, we don't have to be expert dream interpreters um, to say that you have a dream about a huge tree that everybody's marveling at. Again, spoiler alert, this tree is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the tree gets cut down for a certain period of time before it's restored. This is a a message of judgment. Um, But because God is good, he reveals himself to the proud. He even reveals himself here to Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel comes and reveals the meaning of this dream. Next, because God is good, he calls the proud to repentance. Has there ever been a time in your life where God has sent someone or something in your life to remind you that you needed to to bow down and, and return to him? And maybe that didn't feel good in the moment. Maybe that felt really, really difficult, really, really tough. But God didn't do that because he hates you. God does that because he loves you. And so God, because he's good... He calls the proud to repentance. And that's what we're going to see Daniel do. Verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, Daniel answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, it was visible to the ends of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. That's you, king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, that probably refers to an angel, a holy one coming down from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots. Um, and bound them with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let its portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over. In verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a length of your prosperity because God, listen, is good. He calls the proud to repentance. Daniel delivers this news. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man in the world, um, the dream means you're going to go insane, and, um, and you're, everything you pride yourself in is going to be torn away from you. But it doesn't have to happen if you'll just humble yourself, turn away from your sin. Show mercy to the oppressed. And so Daniel is bold. Daniel's bold because he's a prophet, not a puppet. He's willing to stand in front of the most powerful man in the world and tell him the truth. He doesn't justify Nebuchadnezzar's pride by saying, well, you've done a lot of good things for us lately, so I guess it's okay that you act this way. He doesn't justify Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And the church is also called that kind of prophetic witness in this world. He's a a model, Daniel is a model of boldness. He's also a model of humility. I mean, Daniel could have stood before the king and said, man, you're the one responsible for all the bad things that have ever happened to me. Man, I was just a teenager in Jerusalem and you you tore down my city, you burned my temple, you drug me across the world and then then you, you trained me up in your indoctrination machine and this is like a cult and man, it's about time something bad's gonna happen to you. He could have said all that. But Daniel relates to Nebuchadnezzar humbly, which means he treats his enemy like an image bearer of God. Daniel treats Nebuchadnezzar like an image bearer of God. And this idea of image has been really important all the way through the book. He's a model of humility. The very person responsible for all his pain, he treats like an image bearer of God. He tells him the truth, but he does so humbly. Because God is good, he exposes and punishes our sin. Can we be honest? That doesn't sound good, does it? We want the goodness of God to mean he doesn't expose our sin and he doesn't punish our sin. But because God is good, he's relentlessly committed to rooting out pride in our lives. So here with, with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, man, just repent, turn from this, and this won't happen. Maybe it won't happen because God's desire wasn't to ruin Nebuchadnezzar. God's desire was to restore Nebuchadnezzar. God's desire for you isn't to ruin you. It's to restore you. But the choice is ours, whether we're going to cooperate with that or not. And Nebuchadnezzar said, nah. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, so a year passes. God gives him a year to think it over. A year passes. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Sounds pretty prideful doesn't it? Man, look at everything I have done for me. I want to talk about me. want to talk about I, right? Look at everything I did. You ever getting that? Look at all. Look at everything I'm doing and nobody else is doing anything. That's not humility look at everything i've done look at everything i've built and while the words were still in his mouth "O king nebuchadnezzar to you it has spoken the kingdom has departed from you god speaks verse 32 you will be driven from among men your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field you will be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time will pass over you it says that his hair grows out like eagle feathers his Fingernails and toenails grow out like claws, and he eats grass. He thinks he's an animal. Seven periods of time pass. Some say that's seven years. Some say seven months. Some say just God's perfect timing. And we said, man, what is with this? God really punishes his sin, right? This is really a serious thing. And, and uh, some point to this is a condition called clinical uh, lycanthropy, which is a psychological condition where a person believes they are an animal. This was really common in the ancient world. People would kind of go crazy and think they were an animal and eat grass and stuff. Um, that's crazy to like act like an animal. But what's even more crazy is to have continual encounters with God and persevere and persist in an arrogant spirit. What happens with Nebuchadnezzar is he just becomes outwardly what he has been inwardly all along, a beast. And there will come a point if we pursue in hard-hearted, hard-headed pride, what is inside of us will show outside of us. Pride turns us beastly. It twists the image of God. That's why God hates it. But because God is good, he humbles the proud. And and Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of this chapter, gets to the point where basically he says, he's God, and I'm not. His sense returns to him. And he says in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Because God is good, he humbles the proud. He brings us to the point where we say, he's God, I'm not. Because God is good, he transforms our pride, our praise of self, into praise of him. Because God is good, because God is good, amen, because God is good, he humbled himself. Philippians 2, we read it earlier. It says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider his being equal with God something to be grasped, something to be clenched with clenched fists, But it says he emptied himself, verse seven. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse eight. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus does willingly what Nebuchadnezzar did unwillingly. Jesus willingly steps out of his throne as the king of the universe empties himself, becomes one of us, humbles himself to the point of death, death of a cross. Our pride leads to destruction, but Christ's humility leads to our salvation. It's not just hard for us to humble ourselves. It's impossible. But Christ has done the impossible for us. He has done for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. And because he has humbled himself, his spirit can take residence in you and humble you. So the opposite of a life of prize, a life of praise toward God. And so that English word, humility, we probably know this, probably heard this. It comes from this Latin word, humus, which means soil. And you know, if you think about soil, which, I mean, it's down to earth, right? That's what it means to be humble. But soil, we throw like, uh, we spit on it, we walk on it, we put dead stuff on it. And it just keeps returning life for death. That's what humility does. Um, 1 Peter 5 again humble yourself God opposes the pride clothe yourself in humility God opposes the proud I want to end with just some practical ways as the band comes up just some practical ways we can cultivate that humus how do we cultivate the soil of our lives to develop humility the first thing that has to happen is we have to go from death to life so If you're spiritually dead, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then there's no practical thing you can do to develop eternal humility. The first thing and the most important thing that has to happen is you need to have a walk with Christ. You need to receive the free gift of salvation that he wants you to receive. And that's ultimately what breaks the stranglehold of pride in our lives. But then after that, pride remains a struggle for us. There's just some practical steps we can take. One is prioritize worship. Nothing reminds me I'm not God like taking time daily and taking time with you to worship God. That reminds me that I'm not God, that there is a God and I'm not Him. Um, confess our sins to God. That reminds us. Um, we have lots of reasons to be humble. Have Be part of a community or be a part of a group where you can confess your sins to one another. That reminds us. We have plenty of reasons to be humble. Practice saying thank you. When someone coaches you, when someone... Um, Gives you feedback, practice saying thank you, not yeah, but. Um, Intentionally serve without listing all of the ways that you're serving. Just intentionally serve. Listen and ask questions. What about when people say stupid stuff? Especially then, listen and ask questions. Um, Finally, get acquainted with grief. Jesus is called a man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, acquainted with grief. My go-to emotion is anger. And the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Anger, as much as I rely on it, doesn't cultivate humility. It cultivates pride. But what does cultivate humility is grief. Um, Grief gets us low to the ground. Grief opens us up to a place where God can use us and work in us. And so God is relentlessly committed to destroying pride in my life. And that hasn't been a painless process. It isn't a painless process. It's not a fun process. It's an ongoing process. And I know that God loves you as much as he loves me. And so he's relentlessly committed to destroying pride in your life as well. So we cooperate with that first by making Christ the Lord of our lives, and next by just daily bearing with one another and by the Spirit of God putting to death pride.